Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Bonnie Christian on issues surrounding whether we should seek to ban pornography on the internet. We should be considering in terms of developing uh, internal virtue, internal constraints, regardless of what legal or, or social or regulatory constraints are out there, outside of us. Because those constraints may or may not work, they may or may not exist, um, but you know the, the, the internal constraints that come of hopefully growing to be more like Christ, that is something that's always going to be available to us to pursue. Bonnie Christian, next. Christians would nearly universally agree that pornography is a moral plague harming everything it touches from individuals to marriages and families and ultimately to society. So should we seek the outright banning of internet pornography? Journalist Bonnie Christian says this question is more difficult than it first appears. Bonnie's written the chapter, Should We Ban Pornography? Navigating the Complexities of Objectionable Content in a Digital Age in the book, The Digital Public Square. She also writes for Christianity Today and World. Bonnie, how real or prevalent is the discussion around banning Internet pornography? I don't think I've seen the subject much. Yeah, I would say there's not currently a, a, a huge active discussion of it, um, but there it, it sort of comes in cycles. It happens from time to time. I would say the last big cycle of it was maybe 2019, 2020, and that was significantly sparked by a letter from several members of Congress to, at the time, Attorney General William Barr, asking him to do some legal maneuvering to try to put more limits on online pornography. Um, and so that sort of started a news cycle and a conversation cycle on the subject. And I think, you know, if something comparable happened, the, the same sort of conversation would start again. There is a constituency for it. It's not it's not the majority in America by any means, but but there is a, a good subset of Americans who think this is something we should do, even if they're not necessarily, you know, constantly talking about it in the public square. Okay. And and why should this subject, in your opinion, and, and you write a mm-hmm. lot about it in your article, be of concern, of interest to Christians, especially those who uh, this isn't part of their experience, they have nothing to do with pornography? Well, I mean, from the sort of the... the moral and ethical side of things, I think the case is pretty easy to make, right? Like, I don't think you have to work very hard to sell a Christian audience on the idea that pornography is bad, that, um, you know, if you're at all aware of of how the internet has changed the the ways we can distribute pornography, that it, it really is different. The, the degree um, of obscenity and, and violence and the, the extremity of the content really has increased and it really is more accessible than it used to be when you had to, you know, go to a brick and mortar store or order it through the mail. Um, it's, it is legitimately different um, in both quality and quantity and accessibility as well. Um, and, and so that is, that is a big reason to be interested in the subject um, because it, it is available. Maybe it's not something you're accessing, but it's very likely something that someone you know and love is accessing, um, just statistically. The other side of it, though, and this is a lot of what I get into in the article, is that when we, well, it's it's very understandable why people want to try to ban this stuff. When you actually get into the details of what would that entail, you run into all kinds of problems. I think that many people who support a ban may not have thought through. A lot of those are constitutional. Um, just like legal realities of of the constitution that we have, the first amendment that we have, and the unwanted side effects that a ban would have if it were somehow pushed through. Um, But some of them are also like practical problems. Um, You know, if we really did this, 
there would be unintended consequences, consequences that I don't think we actually want. Um, and, and those are things that, you know, to the extent that this is a serious proposal, and when you have members of Congress asking the Attorney General to do it, I think it is a serious proposal. These are things we need to think about. Okay, and we're certainly going to address those a lot of those issues that you just brought up. Um, the the also the the uh, unlimited access to this kind of content. I mean, we all know that the the smartphones mm-hmm. uh, for adults, but then children, and then families. Of course, they they will limit their child's. Uh, use of smartphones, or they might say, well, I'm not going to give my child a smartphone until such and such a time. And yet, all it takes, I think uh, there was a, a conversation between you and um, Jason Thacker, I think, and either you or he just brought up that all it takes is one uh, one child that has a smartphone, and you can mm-hmm. expose plenty of kids that, that don't have the smartphone. And, and you, you cite the story of uh, Destiny Hernandez de la Rosa, I think, uh, a, a mm-hmm. woman. Can you talk about that a little bit? That gives a little bit of an insight into not just the adult side, but that, that children are uh, at, at great risk. Yeah. So um, she was a woman who wrote an article uh, a few years ago in Texas, um, in Dallas, I believe. And she told a story about her daughter, who was, I want to say, 11, um, who had been over to a friend's house. And her daughter, if I recall correctly, did not have a smartphone. Um, but the friend did. Mm-hmm. And the friend handed the phone to her daughter and said something like, boys are so gross. And the daughter looked at the phone and there was a video of several of their classmates watching rape porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this was a case where their family had taken precautions to try to avoid this kind of exposure. Um, and you know, it wasn't even the friend who was like directly watching it, right? It was the friend of a friend through social media and it still got to the daughter. Um, and and so, you know, she went on to comment like, it's it's difficult as a single family to prohibit this, this content, to keep this content from your children, especially when, um, you know, even schools are often functionally requiring phones for classroom use as a homework tool. Um, and, and that kind of environment and just the widespread acceptance that children, quote unquote, need a smartphone at ever younger ages, whether for school or for safety or for fun or for keeping up with their friends. Um, it's just very difficult, even if you manage, it's difficult to hold that line and say to your kid, you can't have a phone. And even if you do it, um, it's very easy for this content to get to them through the phones of other people, other kids whose parents didn't hold the line. Well, I'm talking with Bonnie Christian. She is a journalist, and she's written uh, a couple of books, but we're talking to her today about a chapter that she's written in a book titled The Digital Public Square. The chapter is, Should We Ban Pornography? Navigating the Complexities of Objectionable Content in a Digital Age. And in your really uh, comprehensive piece or a comprehensive chapter, Bonnie, you talk about merits or arguments for banning online pornography and those uh, against it. And, and I'd like to ask you, just because it's the path that your uh, your chapter takes, the argument for banning online pornography, and I think you said it's in, it's kind of three parts, three three big parts. Uh, can, can you touch on what each of those are? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the first part is, is pretty straightforward. Um, I don't think you have to sell Christians very hard on it, and it's that porn is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is uh, both consumption is linked to um, particularly in children, to you know, other negative early experiences like abuse, and then it is also um, linked to uh, p- 
potentially life-altering like other behavior consequences um you know high risk sexual behavior denigration of women addictive behavior um but even beyond those those sort of like practical outcomes and correlations porn is is bad it is wrong evil morally so we start with that then we move on to you know the the digital uh access really is different um it really is easier to get to porn uh, than it used to be a few decades ago. It really is easier to get to much more hardcore pornography, um, you know, just because of the changing uh, formats. You know, you can only be so obscene in a still image compared to what you can do in a video. Um, and so when you combine the fact that porn is evil and that it is easier to get even more grotesque porn than it ever has been in the past, um, then, you know, I think many people conclude uh, very understandably, well, the government should ban this. And going back to the, the first point that you made, that uh, pornography is degrading and corruptive, uh, you didn't say this exactly, but you do in your chapter mm -hmm. four for producer and consumer, but you also mm -hmm. say it runs blatantly against historic Orthodox Christian teaching. And can you kind of frame that for us a little bit? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the historic Orthodox Christian view is that sex is reserved for the context of marriage, right? Pornography is not that. Um, you know, you're not a participant as the viewer, you're not a direct participant in the sexual act there, but you are observing it. Um, people who are probably not married, but even if they were, it's not your marriage. Um, it's not appropriate for you to be watching that. And also in terms of the, the distribution that you talked about a bit for younger listeners, it's going to sound strange, but as you said at the beginning, there was that, that uh, the barriers there were you needed to go into a brick and mortar place, a store, or pay for it. And here online, everything, it's free, and those constraints are gone, where there used to be some sort of a, of a barrier there. You had to sort of work for it in the past. You you had to take the risk that your neighbor sees you go in the store. You had to take the risk that, um, you know, your postman knows what you're getting in the mail. Um, now those risks are very few, uh, and it's and in particularly for for children, for people who are under eighteen. Um, you know, you could walk into a store and you'd have to show ID online. It's very, very easy to find uh, pornography while underage because there aren't those those same requirements. Um, even if they were imperfectly enforced before, now on many websites, they just don't exist. Or maybe you just click a button that says, are you over 18? You click yes. Right. And how can they possibly prove that or ascertain mm -hmm. that? And another thing you point out in your, your article, just uh, going up, uh, to another level uh, of detail, and that is in terms of those that would favor banning online pornography, is that it's impossible to know if the people depicted are consenting, if they're human trafficking victims. Uh, can you talk about that? And I, I think you said that, that that actually isn't really, it's debated, but it's not really disputed. Yeah, I mean, so the, the boundaries of this conversation about banning pornography get blurry because a lot of things pertaining to pornography are already illegal, right? Like you already, it's already illegal to make pornography with children, people who are not adults. It's already illegal to, um, you know, to film a rape, right? And profit off of that, that's non-consensual. Non um, and so there's this, you know, it's already illegal to traffic people. And so there's this idea of, well, what if we focus on only producing and consuming ethical pornography, pornography where we're super sure that everybody involved is a consenting adult. They wanted to be there. They were appropriately paid for their work per their contract, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that there, 
To some extent, there's a good impulse there, right? Obviously, it's better to not have children involved, to not have people being raped, but you can't know is the, the difficulty. You may come across a piece of content that you have every reason to believe it was produced um, as quote-unquote ethical pornography, but you, you can't know for sure. And particularly on the internet, this is true because once a piece of content is uploaded, it can be downloaded and then re-uploaded lots of other places. And so maybe the initial upload context made it very clear that this was unethical, that this was, you know, a child or or non-consensual or whatever. Or whatever. Um, but then when it gets put elsewhere, that context is gone. And so people are consuming it thinking that they're looking at consenting adults and when in fact they're not. This is a very quick overview of the case in favor of banning internet pornography. But you said as such, just looking at those three areas that many Christians have concluded that civil authorities should prevent the production and distribution of uh, pornographic materials, and we're going to talk about the case against it. Obviously, you have, you know, how do you regulate the the internet? And there's the First Amendment and freedom of speech and those things I want to ask you about. But but also just mm -hmm. in a Christian context, th this is a huge money making area, and, and and you can't help but to think of the the scripture, the, the the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I mean, you've got you've got spiritual forces at work here. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's very profitable, of course, even. <laughs> Even at the same time as there's there's plenty of, of content available for free, um, there's there's the money factor as well. Well, uh, Bonnie, turning to the case against the um, the banning of online pornography, and this is your chapter: Should we ban pornography? Navigating the complexities of objectionable content in a digital age. It's uh, part of the book, The Digital Public Square. And, and I could, if, just as an aside, what other uh, topics are addressed in that book, if you know? I know that there's a there's a whole host of other contributors, um, legal scholars, uh, academics, um, touching on a, a, a pretty broad range of things to consider as we're we're navigating the internet, um, which inevitably most, most of us are. Turning to the case against banning internet pornography, uh, just just off the bat, you do not endorse the call for government ban yourself. And just to kind of give us a bit of an overview, can you give us some of the big reasons why you would not endorse that ban? Yeah, well, so the first um, and, and biggest one is that under the government that we have, and, you know, we, we can talk about sort of uh, bigger proposals of maybe we get a different constitution, right? But that was a little bit outside the scope of my chapter. Under the government and the constitution that we have, it's it's just not viable. We have, a, like, it, it, it isn't legally possible um, to do something like a, a full-scale online pornography ban in the way that people talk about and hope for the reason why uh, it's so difficult to ban online pornography the way that people hope to do um, really is the Constitution and specifically the First Amendment. There is a separate legal category called obscenity that can be regulated in the way that most speech in America cannot be. Um, and I think for sort of the layperson, and I'm not a lawyer, so I, I include myself in this, for the layperson, the impulse is to say, well, isn't pornography obscenity? Like we, we use those words, um, you know, interchangeably in, in sort of practical, ordinary speech. I think I've already done it once in this conversation. Um, but in a legal sense, obscenity is a different thing. And as much as it uh, may not <laughs> instantly make sense to those of us who are not lawyers, legally, the vast majority of what we would classify as pornography just does not fit the definition of obscenity and therefore is not going to be subject to uh, this kind of ban. Um, and that's a constitutional matter. And the 
again, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding from my research and from reading what lawyers have written on the subject, um, including the work of David French, who's a contributor to this same volume, uh, my understanding is that the jurisprudence on this is, is quite clear and well-established. Um, we're just constitutionally not going to get a, a ban on online porn. And now, you talk about something called Section 230, uh, mm -hmm. which I think just has, has a specifically Internet application, and you said that is unlikely to face the constitutional hindrances. Uh, that, that, well, if, if you could talk about what Section 230 is and... and is it does it change the uh, uh yeah so section 230 is a law that has been called the first amendment of the internet it is not however actually part of the constitution um basically the way that it works is it says when you have a site that hosts user content so for instance facebook hosts user content it hosts our comments and posts and what have you um facebook is not legally liable for those that content for what its users post even if it does some degree of moderation so the idea is that facebook can comb through everything if it finds you know an admission of a crime if it finds um you know child pornography something that's clearly illegal um or or violates you know even just its own content policy standards it can take that stuff down without thereby assuming responsibility for everything posted on the site, including perhaps other bad things or illegal things that they missed in the moderation attempts, right? And so Section 230 has been really important for the, develop the development of the internet as we know it, because if you make Facebook responsible for everything that it's, I think at this point, billions of users post, Facebook isn't really going to exist, right? Like they, they can't possibly assume that legal liability for the endless flow of content from so many people day in and day out. No one could assume that kind of liability. And so you see this interest in getting rid of section or reforming section 230. Um, and the idea behind it uh, from, you know, people who want to make those changes is if we could somehow increase the liability of the website owner then they would moderate the content more strictly and there would be less bad content online. Um, and that's well-intentioned, but I think, and, and, and other opponents of changing that law think that you will end up with far more problems, um, that you will end up with, honestly, the, the end of the internet as we know it. And I'm not a, I'm a critic of a lot of social media, um, but this would affect much more than, than Facebook. Um, so many things and, and sites and services that we use rely on this limitation of their liability to be able to let users like us use those sites freely. Um, so when it comes to pornography, you know, the idea is that maybe they would, sites would look more carefully for porn if they thought that they were going to be legally liable for it. Um, and I think that potentially that could, uh, work in a legal sense in that it's not going to be held unconstitutional to make that change um, because Section 230 is not part of the Constitution. But in practice, it's not just pornography that's going to go away if you make that shift. What You, you talk in your, uh, your chapter about if internet pornography is banned, which of course sounds like a good idea to, mm -hmm. to a lot of us, you say, as you just alluded to there, there will most likely be unintended consequences, mission creep, things that could even affect Christian content, you believe? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a hypothetical to be sure, but I think the idea of mission creep is something that we should consider really seriously. Um, and the example that I give in the chapter um, that would be of particular interest to Christians is that, you know, there's a there's a subset of people who think that it is deeply unethical to transmit a religion to a child, that you are brainwashing them into like this archaic mindset before they even have their full faculties of reason and it's, you know, functionally child abuse. Um, and that's not maybe a super widespread view, but it's not like a really fringe perspective that nobody holds. Um, an example I give is that uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a prominent new atheist thinker, he holds this view. Um, and, and so if, if views like that become more widespread, right, it's not impossible, it's not incredibly far-fetched to imagine a scenario where rules about taking down bad content to protect the children um, can could potentially jump from taking down pornography to taking down, say, content pertaining to religion, to faith, to Christianity. Um, again, that's not where we are as a society right now, but very frequently uh, the arguments that advocates of pornography bans are making are tied to the fact that our obscenity laws in particular uh, are are built around community standards, sort of like national consensus on what is ethical and what is moral. And as that changes, it's not implausible that the same laws mm. that we want to use now perhaps to get rid of online pornography could be used to get rid of other content for the protection of children in a way that we might not like so much. And in a particularly Christian context, you said that this could have another unintended consequence, perhaps uh, the case against banning internet pornography, is it might be an excuse for for families or, or, or individuals to abdicate uh, the cultivation of virtue or, uh, well, as a part of their lifelong sanctification in Christ. Yeah, I mean, the the... A frequent argument that you see, particularly from Christians who want to ban online pornography, is that, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation with the, the story from the, of the girl in Texas, it is too big for one family to do on themselves, so we need to have the government step in. Um, and I think the first half of that is right. It is too big for the one family to do for themselves. Um, it's the second half that I think is wrong. Um, I would say that the, the institution that is suited for dealing with this best is the local church. Um, it's it's a, a context for discipleship and sanctification where you have not just one family trying to set up this standard for their children, but a group of families who are agreeing on this and who are working together on this. And, um, you know, it's not just your kid out there as the one kid without a phone. You're the one kid who's not watching pornography. It's it's all their friends from church are in the same position. Um, and hopefully as they're maturing and growing older, and pursuing their faith, um, not just experiencing that as a deprivation, but experiencing it as a, a means of cultivating virtue and a, a restraint that protects them while they develop um, sort of their their own internal constraints that, that keep them from seeking out this content, even if it is still there. Uh, there's so many issues, and our, our time is going quickly, Bonnie, but I'm wondering if you could address what some might see as maybe incremental options, in other words, forcing uh, accounts, passwords, payment methods, those kind of things that, I mean, it doesn't block everything, yeah. but it does something. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those run in, still run into more First Amendment issues than many people realize, just on the basis of past judicial precedent, where similar cases have been considered by the Supreme Court and elsewhere. But the other thing that I would point to, even if you could get them past the legal hurdles, the other thing I would point to is that the internet is just very difficult to zone in that way to to 
to control. Mm-hmm. Um, people like to make analogies to like land zoning where we're going to put, you know, all of the red light district in this one area and it can't spread elsewhere. Um, but that analogy only goes so far because the internet is not a physical space where you can go and mark out the boundaries and say, we're, we're locking the bad stuff in here. Um, again, once something is uploaded, it is now out of control. Um, you cannot confine it to one site, even if that site is password protected, even if you have to pay to access that site, once something is uploaded, someone will figure out a way to download it and to upload it elsewhere. Once you shut down one website, five more websites will pop up with all of the same content. And so again, as much as I'm sympathetic to some of these more incremental proposals, I think it's based in something of a technological naivete, just like an ignorance of how the internet actually works and how content actually spreads and how once it's online, it's online for good. And another issue that uh, a lot of people would never think about unless they've been told about it or are aware of it is that of uh, content moderators, there are there are AI, artificial intelligence uh, does this to some extent, but human moderators, which moderate, which have to view this content to maybe pull it mm-hmm. off, and if it was, uh, uh, which obviously they already they already have those, but it would mm-hmm. just raise the number of those needed to police everything, and uh, and 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 it causes things like PTSD, post traumatic stress, and other. Other problems. Can you address that? That's kind of a, a side issue, but yeah. important. There's relatively little reporting on this subject, which I find so strange because it's it's really terrible. Um, an outlet called The Verge did some reporting on it a few years ago, which is honestly where I first really thought about it. Um, but essentially, social media websites in particular, but any website that's moderating a lot of user content, they already use AI moderation for a lot of stuff, but you need a human backup because the AI is just not perfect yet. It doesn't always get things right. It gets false positives, false negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they hire people to to take down this stuff. And, and, oh, those people just have a terrible time. Like many people cannot do it for more than a few months. Um, they they become ext- like they require counseling at work. They are doing drugs at work just to get through the day because it is so miserable. Um, I think people in, either forget that these, these folks exist and mm-hmm. that, that someone has to do this. Or if they think about it, I think many people assume that it's sort of like being in law enforcement where you have the satisfaction of like doing the right thing. But the difference is that if you're, say, a police officer who catches someone who's distributing child pornography, um, you know, you have that sense of resolution of like justice has been done. If you're a moderator, you don't have any of that. And you're taking down perhaps the same piece of terrible content one time, two times, 10 times, 20 times. And what is it like when the same, you know, perhaps assault video, you're taking that down for the 10th time and mm-hmm. it just keeps coming back. Um, and so it's very easy to say, oh, well, someone needs to someone needs to take down all the porn off the internet, right? But you have to remember, someone needs to do that. And we're asking that of them um, when we propose these bans. And that is not a, a consequence for your request. And, and you just, you, you frame it in a really interesting way toward the end of your chapter. You just talk about really to enforce a ban like this in something as uh, nebulous as the internet, that it doesn't really have physical properties to it, like the like the physical world, obviously, it would, it would require some kind of authoritarian style crackdown, you know, like, like you would see in North Korea that actually does that, but w- at what cost? Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's very easy to talk about, well, we should just ban it. Um, and again, I understand that impulse. But 
to to actually do it in an effective way, never mind even all the legal constraints and, and the problem of making somebody actually go out and search through this content, to actually do it in a successful way where the content doesn't just slip through to a new website, perhaps even a website hosted outside the United States where we have no legal authority to make them take it down. You would have to go all out and and just, you know, haul off our internet from the rest of the world in a, in a very authoritarian manner that I don't think any of us are prepared to accept. Well, we've been talking about uh, Bonnie Christian's chapter, Should We Ban Pornography? Navigating the Complexities of Objectionable Content in a Digital Age. She's given us a very good uh, understanding and um, idea of what some of those complexities are. It's in the book, The Digital Public Square. And just kind of wrapping it up, uh, Bonnie, we've talked about it a little bit. You you finish your chapter with this with a task for families, for adults, for individuals, really. Uh, if if we, we can't, as you've described, we really can't count on government uh, control because we still have our own our own choices to make. And it comes back to sanctification and resisting temptation by God's grace, by those means that he's given. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and maybe passages of Scripture that, that uh, particularly uh, address this subject for us. I mean, I think it's easy for us to, to focus on, in some ways, the legitimate uniqueness of our situation with how accessible the, the Internet makes pornography. Um, but it's also important to remember that the, the world of the New Testament, the world in which um, Paul and the, the other writers in the New Testament were, were writing to congregations. It was it was very lewd in many ways. Um, you know, there were prostitutes walking around, just sort of normal society. If you've ever read any of the sort of the ancient Greek and Roman poems or seen some of the the drawings that they did, you know, they they were not in a more innocent time. And so, when the New Testament talks about um, resisting and fleeing sexual temptation and ridding ourselves of these things and holds this up as as a significant aspect of sanctification. You know, it's not the only thing. It's not like a, a the sin above all other sins, um, but it's also taken very seriously. Um, that that is just as relevant for us, and it is something that. Uh, we should be considering in terms of developing uh, internal virtue, internal constraints, regardless of what legal or or social or regulatory constraints are out there outside of us, because those constraints may or may not work. They may or may not exist. Um, but, you know, the, the, the internal constraints that come of hopefully growing to be more like Christ, that is something that's always going to be available to us to pursue. Um, again, hopefully in the context of a local congregation where, where everyone is on the same page about that and trying to, to pursue that together. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, journalist Bonnie Christian. We've been discussing the chapter she wrote for the book, The Digital Public Square. The chapter titled, Should We Ban Pornography? Navigating the Complexities of Objectionable Content in a Digital Age. She's also the author of Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Brad Jacob on some recent important U.S. Supreme Court rulings, including a major one touching on freedom of speech. And in a case like this, where there are so many other places uh, where you could get your same-sex wedding webpage, court says this doesn't meet strict scrutiny. She has a free speech right to not build that website that violates her religious conscience. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.